here today to acknowledge and represent the African-American girls whose stories don't make the front page of every national newspaper. I represent the African-American women who are victims of gun violence, who are simply statistics instead of vibrant, beautiful girls that pull up potential. Welcome back to Black Girl Watching, where we break down your favorite films and TV shows. I'm Brooke Obi, film critic, writer, editor, and screenwriter. And I'm Brittany Danielle. I'm a writer, editor, and cultural critic who loves watching and reading Black art. And I'm super excited and a little bit scared to talk about today's episode of Lovecraft Country, episode eight, Jigabobo. Yes, this episode is terrifying. It gave me actual nightmares and we're going to get into it. But if you want to join us in this conversation, please use the hashtags on social media, Black Girl Watching on Instagram and Twitter. And you can also tweet us at BLKGRL Watching to share all your thoughts, ask any questions you might have and share your theories with us. We're getting towards the end. So let us know how you think this is all going to shake out. Yeah. And just to keep in mind, Since we are um, breaking down every single thing of episode eight, this episode will include spoilers. So if you have not seen episode eight or any of the other episodes of Lovecraft Country, put a pause on this podcast, go watch the show, and then come back and join us. And we're super excited because we have a very special guest once again, as always. This week, we have the writer of this episode, Ioma Ofordere. So please stay tuned for that. She gives some very great insight into what is going on in this wild episode. And she spills a little bit of tea too. So stick around for that. Yes. So let's get started. What were some of your first reactions, Brooke, to this episode? I was really, once again, encouraged by the space that was given to Black Girl Rage. We've been seeing Black women expressing their rage in ways that we haven't been able to see before. But to see Diana have this moment in her, in this episode that's kind of centered around her and her experience, her grief and her loss over her best friend, her fear over what's happening with her mom, her grief over her dad, and all of that compiling into anger that she actually gets to express throughout the episode with the people in her life, the adults in her life who are lying to her, the police who are accosting her, little girls who are happy when they should not be because it's a really, really sad occasion. I was very, very heartened that she had the space to express that anger and that amazing scene where she is riding her bicycle past the demon spirits that are that are chasing her down and Naomi Wadler's speech, that 11-year-old girl who was speaking at the March for Our Lives and talking about the ways that gun violence impacts Black women and girls and how we don't often get to see or hear about what happens to those girls. We know about Emmett Till. We don't know about the Dianas of, of 1955. So that, that, that struck me the most in this episode. Yeah, I just had a couple of visceral reactions. I know that you texted me the day before I watched it and said you were terrified and you were having yes. nightmares so I was already <laughs> like what am I signing myself up for um so yeah my first reaction is that we fully returned back to horror to the horror that we encountered in episode three which is what I think is one of the most um sort of horror themed episodes yeah so we're back to that clearly again Ruby I'm exasperated and annoyed with Ruby. It's too much. And we can talk about that (laughs) a little bit later. But just like, girl, come on. Like, stop fooling with these white folks. Stop fooling with Will Stina. Like, stop it. 
It's, it's frustrating. It's frustrating to see her go down this this path. It's I don't know. And and the other thing is like everybody in this episode, just about not everybody, but Tick, Letty, and Ruby seem to all be making these deals with literal white devils. And I'm just like, why are you doing why? this? Like, stop it. Stop it. Why? So I hope yeah. that, um, <laughs> I don't know. We only have two more episodes. So I hope that all this wheeling and dealing with, with the whites works out for them, but mm, it ain't looking too sweet. Let's get into it because I mean, it, it seems like they have gotten what they wanted, but we all know at this point that messing with white devils is not actually going to get you to freedom. The only person that seems to have any daggone sense is the child in the situation. Diana also is facing some supernatural, scary, life-threatening situations. And she is also offered a deal with the devil. And she spits in the devil's face. And so I'm just like, why does this child have so much more sense than these adults? Like, I, I, I don't I don't understand it. But, you know, this is really an opportunity for us to learn more about Diana. And I'm, I'm here for it. I appreciate it. Right. Um, and a lot of what happened to Diana in this episode is shaped by her loss of her friend, Bobo, which we have seen throughout the series. And now, if it wasn't clear to anybody before, Bobo is Emmett Till. That was Emmett Till's actual nickname as well. And you could see in episode three Mm -hmm. in The Haunted House, while they were playing with the Ouija board, Bobo is dressed in the same way that Emmett Till was dressed in the last picture that we have of him that was taken of him alive. And he also asked the Ouija board, am I going to have a good time on my trip? And the Ouija board tells him no. So those were all signs that this was Emmett Till, that he was going to go down south, and the same things that actually ended up happening in history were going to happen to him. We thought that perhaps, you know, Hippolyta in the time machine, she was going to save George, she was going to save Bobo, but that did not actually end up happening. And it brings us to this episode, which is opening on the funeral that's being held for Bobo on the south side of Chicago. And Diana is there with Tick and Letty and Ruby and Montrose. And they're all kind of in this big line, this crowd of Black people who have all come to this space to see the open casket of Emmett Till. And they're still outside, so they they haven't seen it. Uh, they haven't seen him. Um, and, you know, Diana just kind of, they're all kind of arguing about whether Diana should be there or not. And Letty even says the remarkable thing, we should be protecting Diana from this. And then they pretty much fail throughout the entire rest of the episode to protect her from anything. On the other side, Montrose says that she has to see it. Like she might as well get used to it. And we learn a little bit later when he, when he fails at comforting Diana because softness is not his forte. He basically says like, no, this is what the world does to black people. And so she might as well get used to it and she might as well start seeing it. 
Uh, it's such a it's such a catch twenty two, right? Like on one hand, especially as a parent, there's been all these conversations about having the talk, and they don't mean the sex talk. They mean like the talk black parents have to give their black children about how to interact with police, about how you have to always keep your hands in plain sight. And as we've seen over these past few years, young people have been witnessing these extrajudicial killings by police officers, basically lynchings, right, by police officers. And so what Montrose is saying in that moment, while Letty is saying we need to protect her while nobody is actually looking at her because they lose her he's saying like we need to tell her and expose her to what actually is but i'm not you know i'm not so sure right like i'm not so sure she should be robbed of that innocence that she's later mad at uh, when she encounters those other two little girls just kind of having ice cream i'm not sure what the what the answer is but it's a terrible situation that america has put black people in yeah that continues to this day should we be watching George Floyd be murdered on camera? Like, are these things that we need to see in order to make a change happen? Do we need to see more Emmett Tills, the maimed bodies of Black people? And what? who is it for? What does it do for people? And I think at this time in 1955, this was not something that was international or national news at all. Mamie Till, um, Emmett Till's mother, made a very brave decision to have her son's photo placed on the cover of Jet Magazine for the world to see what white men did to her son. Right. And it sparked quite a bit of movement during the civil rights movement that has continued on to this day. It's this lasting image. White people have seen quite a bit Mm -hmm. of Black death. Um, They've seen the videos and nothing seems to quite happen. Like police are still murdering us and they're still getting away with it. And so it's the question becomes, is this some sort of black trauma porn, black pain porn? And then what does it do to black people to continuously consume these images? And it's sad because Diana and black children and black girls should be allowed to have a childhood. And I think you know, this episode really gets into what happens to Black girlhood, what happens to Black children due to white supremacy, that that lost innocence. Yeah. One of the things that I really appreciated was that we didn't see Emmett Till, right? We didn't see Bobo in the same way as the Jet cover sort of restaged. Because I, I was really worried, <laughs> right? When they were in the line and the audience is watching, I'm just like, oh my God. Like, I hope they don't go there, but this show has you know have ha- has had some gory moments but not but with I'm black reminded death. That, yeah yeah i'm reminded that all of those gory moments have not been directed as, at black people even though black people have definitely been in peril and they've been attacked but they haven't been you know heads ripped off or maimed or whatever and so i was happy that they made that choice not to show it, but show all of the after effects. And Diana is distraught and she leaves and they lose her. And so they, you know, take Letty, Montrose and Ruby all kind of split up to try to find Diana. And she's just kind of wandering around the South Side Main Street. And she comes upon these two little girls. She's watching them get ice cream, like in a penny arcade. And they're laughing and she picks up some rocks. She throws the rocks at the two girls because... And she yells, ain't nothing to laugh at. And that is when she runs into Captain Lancaster and the boys in blue who roll up on her and start asking about her mama. Yeah, because they have the comic book that Hippolyta left by mistake in the last episode before she goes through the portal and murders one of the cops. 
that comic that Diana drew for her mother is laying up underneath the cop. So the police know that Hippolyta and her family are involved in whatever has gone on with the Ori. Lancaster knows that they know about magic because they know about the Ori and they're all the, they were all the way in Kansas. And so he starts to harass Diana. And I don't know. We lied to the cops where I'm from. Right. I, I don't know right. what... Um, Diana. You know, or how they even knew that she was Diana. Right. I'm not quite sure how they knew that she was Diana Freeman from the comic book because she did sign her name on the comic book. Again, it's very dubious. But what I think may happen is because these cops are deployed on the South Side, right? So I'm assuming they know, especially the well-known or the more infamous people on the South Side and George and Hippolyta run the Safe Negro printing shop book company. And so I would imagine like they are one of the more well-known people on the south side how did they know she was diana Mm, not sure but yeah when they rolled up on her it was like are you diana freeman i would have been like nah dog i'm (laughs) diana washington like i don't mm, i ain't i don't even i ain't even heard of that well i mean black people don't have no name like diana (laughs) right no i'm 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 ruby washington like i can't even (laughs) diana no my name is Ruby Letty Atticus. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I have no idea who you're referring to. But, you know, I think at this point, too, as relieved as I was that they protected us from seeing Emmett Till's body being destroyed in that way. I wish that Diana had just been protected and she's just not protected. She goes through what I think, you know, besides George, who was murdered and Letty, who was also murdered and resurrected. I feel like what Diana went through is some of the most horrific of the show to have them curse her and spit on her to seal the curse and to have these demon spirits chasing her. And we'll get into a little bit more about that and what those what those two represent a little bit later. But it just it bothered me. It bothered me, particularly because Letty said we need to protect her and nobody protected her and nobody saw her humanity. These cops did not see a little girl. They did not see someone who does not have her parents with her looking after her, anybody looking after her. And they cursed her um, so that she's unable to speak, to share what happened to her. And so what what we actually find out happened, what the curse actually is, is the two girls who were laughing and joyful earlier that Diana was throwing rocks at. Now she sees two girls following her, but they are distorted. They are demonic. They are not alive and they're not visible to anybody else. And what it actually, what they, their hairstyle and, and every, the, the representation of the, the stereotype, the Piccaninny is based off of Topsy in Uncle Tom's cabin, who was a young enslaved girl, like eight or nine years old, who was pretty much kind of just like a buffoonish kind of character and kind of represented, uh, ended up creating this stereotype of young black girls and their ignorance and they're just, you know, not to be taken seriously, completely dehumanized and, and, and stripped of complexity. 
um, like Diana has. And so they're actually, they end up chasing the, these um, versions of Topsy, end up chasing Diana all the way around as she's she's trying to get to safety. Everywhere. Yeah. They end up chasing her everywhere. And to go back to what you were saying, where no one was protecting her, we see in this scene in at the beginning when everybody, all of the adults in Diana's life disperse to go find her. When she is found or when she meets Letty outside of Letty's house, when Letty sets eyes on her, Letty does not protect her at all. Letty does not ask any questions. Letty does not say, are you okay? Letty does not say, oh my God, Diana, like, where have you been? We missed you. We were looking for you. Like, whatever Letty's going through in her life completely overtakes her concern for Diana. So this was one of my first reactions to the show. Like, a lot of these characters, to me, are acting out of character. So for Letty to act so dismissively of Diana, to me, that felt really not Letty-like, especially the Letty we've encountered over these eight episodes. And if she would have told Diana or had a conversation with her or brought her into the house. Those Piccaninny spirits would not be able to follow her into that house because they are of Captain Lancaster. And as we see later in the episode, he can't go up in that house. So like if, if they would have taken a moment, if Letty would have would have taken a moment to offer some comfort to Diana, especially after they make this pr- production about looking for her and Montrose being she can't be on the streets alone or whatever like she would have been protected and again I guess as you mentioned this is sort of a metaphor for how black girls are often left to fend for ourselves right when you're a young girl like you're Sometimes some parents think, you know, you got it. You're babysitting somebody at a super young age. You're cooking dinner for folks. Like I I often think about my grandmother, who was the oldest of like 11 or 12 kids. And, you know, by the time she was eight, she's cooking dinner for everybody. And I, I just can't wrap my mind around it. And that is what Diana is doing. Like she's being left out there to fend for herself in a way that is detrimental to her. And she has to figure it out. And it's sad. But I do wonder too, on the point of whether Diana would have been safe in the house, if Diana could have gotten into the house, if she was cursed. True. But she's not a magician. She's not wielding that dark magic. So I think at the very least, if they would have tried it and if she would have bounced out, that would have known that opened exactly. the conversation for further exactly. discussion. Even though, right, even though she choked when she tried to tell Letty what was happening because of the spell that Lancaster put on her so that she is not able to actually say anything about the conversation that Lancaster did this to her. But at least the people around her could have helped to protect her. And, and we see how Montrose, not knowing what happened, could end up hurting her right. based on you know the way that I interpreted that final scene. Yeah. His ignorance of what she was doing and how she was trying to protect herself I might have actually um, caused yeah, her it was, some it harm. It was not great. But <laughs> everybody in this episode is afraid of being harmed from what we can see. So the first person that we see trying to get themselves some protection is Tick. So instead of looking for Diana, he lies to Letty once again. God, this jerk. Anyway, he (laughs) tells Letty he's going to go to the five and dime and try and find Diana. If he had gone to the five and dime, he would have found her. He would have found her and he would have been there for her. But I mean, of course, Tick cannot be useful because it's not in his daggone nature. So anyway, he goes to meet Christina 
at the family mausoleum instead. And he trades her the key to the Ori. And we all know that Hippolyta may or may not be trapped inside the Ori. So he gives the, the key to Christina to the Ori so that she will help him cast spells or, t- or teach him a spell to cast for his protection. And I'm just like, do you even care if you can get Hippolyta back or not? He's just like, oh, she's gone. My yeah. time to look out for self. They were, <laughs> so that was a little, <laughs> yeah, that was a little weird. He didn't even ask like, hey, can I get somebody out of this Ori? <laughs> like it, it was a little abrupt to me that he completely wrote her off. So he goes to Christina to cast spells. I'm assuming of invulnerability. What kind of spells is he trying to cast? He's trying to cast invulnerability spells for himself. Because he's been to the future. He met his... So, yes. So, that we have to correct uh, the record. Last week, I was saying that I I thought for sure that he had met... Because the book that he came back with, Lovecraft Country, was written by George Freeman. I thought that meant he had been in contact with his uncle George, who had documented everything. But, in fact, he had gone to the future and met his son and knows that he's dead. And that his son has been raised without him. So he's very, very anxious. He knows Letty's pregnant, even though she won't, she hasn't had that conversation with him. But she, he goes to Christina to protect himself so that he can stay alive. It sounds like his future son, George and Letty are fine in the future. So, I mean, obviously they don't need you, boo. So why more reason to be asking about Hippolyta? Right. Which is why I was slightly worried about, because he never, he never says what type of spells he wants to cast. He just says he wants her to teach him to cast spells. And I assumed it was invulnerability for himself, but maybe it's not. Maybe he's trying to protect, you know, which wouldn't make sense since he went to the future and saw that his George. son's alive. Exactly. Um, and read the Dagon story. Maybe. And who is he trying to cast spells against considering... Because it was supposed to be Christina. Right. Considering his beef is with Christina. Like so far, they don't have... He's not aware of this Lancaster drama that they've been dragged into the middle of. He's not aware of all of that. So their whole adversary to this point has been Christina. And so like... No, he's aware of Lancaster because remember, Lancaster was involved with Hiram Epstein in the house. And so they found out all that information about Lancaster being the one who's ahead right, of this Chicago branch of the lodge. Like he knows that they're, he knows that they're problem, there, but, but they're, Christina they're, is the main Yeah, problem. like Lancaster has not up until this episode directly threatened except for letting letty that rough ride and dropping this knowledge like after that lancaster and christina has been beefing it hasn't been yeah lancaster and the black folks and so again why are we making deals with the literal devil i don't get it yeah that's the thing too it really doesn't make a lot of sense because even in the book he reads that his son has documented that christina sacrifice christina who is it's so funny they use actually what actually happens in the book lovecraft country um because the show again is is quite a deviation from the book so he's saying oh some details are changed but they're actually the real details from the book that you know george is alive the whole time well some of the details some of the details because um i don't think that that's how the actual book ends i don't think tick is dead at the end of lovecraft country 
the real book. Well, he's not that important. I mean, we didn't finish reading the book. We got bored, to be honest. He's also not that important. He's not that important yeah, in the book. So he could have been sacrificed. We don't we don't really know. But and, the point is that um in the book, I mean, he he does say that Christina is actually a man in the book. Her name is Caleb, which is all is true. There is no Christina in the book. This was something and William is in the book, but they're not the same person. Um, so, you know, that, that was another, that was a Misha Green creator and showrunner special, um, that she gave us with, with this whole storyline. But yeah, essentially right. he knows that Christina is his main enemy and he knows that Christina is the one that kills him according to this book that his son in the future wrote. So I don't understand what the spell is for. Like, why would she give you the power to cast a spell for your protection when she needs you to not be protected so that she can get what she wants, which is immortality, which is different from invulnerability? It doesn't make any sense. Like, you give Christina the key to the Ori, that's like praying for Trump. Like, I mean, why do you want your enemies to succeed, sir? Tell me. I have no thoughts and prayers for that dude or Christina or William, which is why Ruby... <laughs> frustrates the hell out of me um on this show okay well let's get into ruby like what is going on so again this is another person who's supposed to be out looking for diana she said she was going to stay in the daggone line to wait and see if diana comes back she does not stay in that line she goes back to the north side and there you know this white neighbor of williams is trying to cause some trouble and william swoops in and saves the day so she you know she wants an escape. She doesn't want to be black on the day that this poor little boy is being displayed. And with all this grief on the South side of Chicago, everybody in her community going, she doesn't want to deal with that. She wants an escape from that. And that is what Wilstina gives her. And so she goes to him, she takes this potion. She says she doesn't want to, <laughs> she doesn't want to have sex with him as a black person. She doesn't want to be having sex with a white man on the day that Emmett Till of Emmett Till's funeral. Girl, I mean, I guess. But anyway, so she takes this potion. <laughs> I don't I don't get it. And I know there was a whole speech about it, and I still was like, girl, boo. No. Not at all. Oh, we'll get into that a little bit more with the writer of the episode. Yoma has some 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 thoughts on that. But to my knowledge, or nothing that I've ever seen on television or movies, a, a sex scene quite like this. It is period sex to like the 10,000th degree. It's gruesome, but neither of these two people, like they're so used to it at this point. Like they're used to the mess and like- but- but also, you're not having sex with a white man. I was fully expecting, <laughs> I was fully expecting, like, after the blood exploded everywhere, that we would see, you know, Black Ruby and Christina. I think that's where they should have went because, like, that's really what this is. But I'm just like, what are the mechanics of this? And I, maybe I shouldn't ask these questions. But as I was watching, I was like, who... Is cleaning this up. The same thing, at least in the previous episode um, with Gia, we saw her quote mom coming to scrub up all the blood and guts of the of the men she killed. But we don't <laughs> we don't ever see the aftermath. Like, does this skin like after it explodes, does it just shrivel away? Are there pieces of skin left all over Chicago? Because you know, Ruby was going through the change. all over the city and so I'm like so what happens here um again probably not important but it's logistics one of the things that I definitely think about yeah like it's it's one of the things that I think about but this scene was just like (sighs) 
it's it's Ugh, I don't even I don't even have the words. Just ugh, it's frustrating, like, but it was it was terrible. I mean like a, it, this is a, a show that has what the fuck after what the fuck after what the fuck moment, and that I mean it just like raises the stakes, and yeah. it, it, with every kind of twist and turn that happens, yeah. They she has this conversation with Christina, and Christina after after the the sex is done. Um, and Christina is herself again. She and Ruby is herself. She's basically saying like, no, you wanted, you came here because you wanted comfort from me. So, and I gave you that. Um, but you, you know, just basically like you, you need to face it. You wanted an escape and you know, that's okay. You can't actually look out for yourself, which, you know, ugh, hearing it from, hearing everything from Christina just makes me cringe a little bit. Like don't, don't give black people advice on how to, how to be black, please. Like uh, how to cope with blackness or how to cope with white supremacy. Like just, mm, no, I don't, I don't want to hear it from you. It felt a little like self-care-y from a, a white feminist, feminist <laughs> trademark perspective. Like, no, you don't, this isn't, you didn't want to make love to me as a white woman because X, Y, Z, like you just needed some time to yourself. And then Ruby, oh Ruby follows up with like, do you feel anything? Like, okay, sis, why are you asking this demon witch a question? <laughs> Like she, her eyes are dead. William's eyes are dead. They don't feel anything. So like, I just, this is the part that drives me insane. Okay. Ruby wanted to have a moment. I get it. I don't, I don't get it, but I get it. Right. But like, don't try to ask for this, this literal white devil to be like, you don't understand. Do you feel anything about this twisted book? She don't care. She don't care. And she doesn't care about you either. And she, and she doesn't care about you either. And yet later in the episode, Ruby is still on this Will Stina shit. And I'm just like, girl, what? somebody got to bop you upside the head for you to not, for you to realize like this ain't the move, but like she's hurt. It's clear in that moment when her and Christina have that conversation about do you feel anything about this young boy who was murdered and maimed and killed in this way? And Christine's like, no, cause I'm a, I'm a sorceress. I'm a wizard. I'm a, well, she would be a witch and I don't care about you mortals and especially you black mortals and your concerns. Unless it has anything so, no. to do with her. And that's the other thing too. Like it's not really becoming clear to me yet why Will Stina is even involved with Ruby because Ruby does go back and have the conversation with Letty and say, you know, yeah, I've been hanging. I know all about magic. I've been with, you know, Christina and William. And no, I'm not a spy. Cause I mean, so that kind of answers some of our questions that we had in, in um, a couple of the episodes since episode five and this like weird endearment that she has to William slash Christina because of this magic that they've given her and that she continuously uses that magic for her own selfish white feminist self-care needs. 
But, you know, so at least she doesn't think that she's being played and she hasn't been asked to give any information. So I guess I'm not really clear because Christina did very clearly tell her at the beginning of episode seven that this what's going on has to do with you and your family. But we don't actually know what Christina told her. So we don't know how much Ruby actually knows about Letty's involvement or, you know, that she does know that Letty's pregnant now, but like how Atticus is involved in all that. So we we don't actually know how Ruby fits into this story yet or why William Christina would waste time with Ruby if she's not going to be a spy. Like I, I don't, I'm not seeing how the puzzle pieces are fitting together or what Ruby's entire purpose, like why would Christina take the time out to do this? I mean, I know she wanted Hiram's Ori at first. I thought, yeah, that's, that's what I thought initially. It was going to be her way into the house since she can't come into the house. I thought it was going to, she was going to use Ruby through William to get the Ori, but now Tick just handed over the key. So it doesn't matter. So yeah, that is a good question. What is the point of Wilstina and Ruby? Is it just so Ruby can experience magic on her own and lead to this conversation with Letty, which I was surprised. She just was like, look, sis, Magic exists. I've been a white woman. <laughs> yeah, but Letty's obviously very upset with Ruby for being for consorting with their enemy. And Ruby at this point has only been used to cause harm against Lancaster, which we still haven't seen the fruits of that. Like, what did the stone have to do that Ruby put in his desk? What does it have to do with anything? What does the dead man in the closet have to do with anything? That was back in episode five. We're on episode eight now. So we're still waiting kind of for right. the payoff of those things that were planted. But yeah, that's a that's a difficult conversation that Letty and Ruby have. And there's still so much that they need to tell each other that they haven't told, except that Ruby, uh, that Letty tells Ruby that she's pregnant. And then Letty goes home to her house and she finds a stranger there and has another difficult conversation because that stranger right. is Gia. So Tick has come home. Christina teaches him to use in- energy and intention as well as to recite the, the words and all that kind of stuff. So he comes back to the house with that understanding and he sees the shoes outside the door and he's like, oh Lord, he knows that it's Gia mm-hmm. who's come from South Korea to find him. And so Gia is explaining to both Letty and Tick what a Kumiho is and why she tried to kill him, but it was an accident. And he's just being very Tick. And I have to say, this is like, uh, I mean, I know I say it every episode at this point, but I'm I'm done with Tick. Like this was so, I think his treatment of Gia was so harsh and so unnecessary. He may not have invited her to the house, but he's the one that keeps calling her from South Korea. She ain't spending her coins calling him in Chicago or Florida or wherever else. He's calling her. He's called her several times. We've seen that throughout the series. And the last time that they talk, this is back at the end of episode five, when he decodes a part of the language of Adam and it says die. And he gets the, he gets to remembering what Gia told him back when they were in Korea together that he was going to die and that she had seen him die and that she told him not to go back to America. Don't go back home to Chicago because you're going to die. And so in Korea, he had run out. He didn't want to listen to her. He didn't want to hear about who she is or what she is or how she knew any of those kinds of things. He was just totally freaked out and he left and then went back home anyway. And so once he found that, 
uh, decoded that language and it said he was going to die. He called her up, episode five. He asked her, how did you know? And then he asked her, what are you? And she felt, uh, apparently by this episode, that that was a conversation that they needed to have in person. So she comes all the way from South Korea and that had to be expensive. Another like, what? Like, how does she know how to find him? Yeah, we don't know, but she finds him. And she ends up there. She explains what a kumiho is. Apparently, she says she has taken 100 lives. So maybe she's cured. I don't know. Well, no, she still says she's a kumiho. So she's obviously still not. Yeah, she's nine. She's still at 99. She's, I think she tells him that she has to take 100. It's her nature. And he assumes she's yeah. taking. Yeah, he's, he assumes she's taking 100, even though he was 100 and he's very much alive. And so he's badgering Gia and Gia has no answers for him about how he's going to die or when he's going to die. None of that. She just knows that he's going to die, but cannot give any more information. So he's all frustrated and is like, well, why did you even bother coming? And Letty's like, well, it's because she loves you and she gets all upset and she leaves. Again, this is another conversation that felt out of character and i know it's mostly or maybe about tick still keeping the secret from letty after all the stuff that they've been through and he's still on his hero whatever like i'm trying to protect you i didn't know what this thing was either and you know i'll give him the slightest of passes because he didn't stick around to hear about the kamiho after the tentacles came out and plugged up his eyes and he bounced and he was like stay away from me but yet he was still calling her as you mentioned and he tried to play it off like he didn't know if he was in love with her or not and i think pretty clearly in episode six even though the circumstances were a little shady um it was pretty clear he was in love with her he has never smiled at letty the way that he smiled at gia when she turned around and hey he had them flowers he ain't never gave he's never even taken letty on a daggone date i think it's demetria lucas right like on her instagram she was talking about black women deserve the same kind of softness and the same kind of courting and the same kind of affection that black woman as in Letty in the show as he gave Gia like that whole movie date that whole you know trying to make a way out of no way for her even though he was a whole war criminal exactly uh right before that um <laughs> lest we forget he was murdering women right right before he arranged this date with her and yeah he hasn't and it's just like okay so it's tick just hardened by life at this point he has this post-traumatic or this post-war hardness to him. He's not, he's, he's back in America and it's like back to being segregated and back, like all of these things placed upon him that black women have to deal with when they deal with black men, right? Where when he was removed from this situation, he got to be more carefree. He got to be more playful. He got to be more romantic. And Letty is not the beneficiary of any of that. And even the sex that they had, the first scene was like a minute and a half. And it That's was That's generous. On. That was three pumps was, and a hump. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. It was, and it was based on jealousy. Exactly. Right? It was based and on ownership. jealousy. And ownership. And him claiming exactly. her. And then he bounced to go downstairs. And then the next time we see, they have a little bit more time, but it's still based on like, don't be afraid of me. I'm so sorry. I almost beat my father to death right in front of you. <laughs> Let's make love. Like it's, it's just, 
I know in this part of the story, they don't have time to go on a date, but I wish they could work in some extra moments of tenderness now that we know that Letty is pregnant. Like, come on. And now that he, and he knows, and we, and we know he knows because he tells Montrose. But I think at the same time too, he's so, I mean, he's so nasty to Gia and uh, tells her to get the fuck out of his house. Like, it's just so unnecessary. And so like, hateful especially if someone is bringing to your knowledge like this person is here out of concern for you because they're also they still are in love with you and you did not have closure to your relationship you were promising her all these things taking her to america and all kinds of other stuff you know and so to not even have the capacity to drum up some empathy for this person that you've cared about at some point in your life um, who has no idea what your situation is? She doesn't know that you're in a new relationship or whatever. You know what I'm right. saying? It just was, I don't know. I think Tick is irredeemable. I'm over him. I'm done with Tick. Like, <laughs> and not, not to pile on to Tick, but and at this point, you know, you, I feel like at this point you need all of the magic you can get exactly. on your side. Right. Like, you know, that she has some kind of power. Like, Mm. it would behoove you to have it be on your side and not be out there working against you or whatever. Like, Gia is not working against him. She scared his life when she could have killed him. So, like, so bring her into the fold. Like, I know it's awkward because you and Letty got your thing and, you know, she pregnant and she loves you and you kind of love her, maybe. But, like, you need all the people you can get on your side because white magic got powers and they know how to use them in a way that you don't. And that's, what's really frustrating too, because that was my hope actually. And so I feel like my hopes are dashed um, for how this show would end, that they would kind of be the anti-watchmen and have all of the marginalized people team up together and, and fight white supremacy together. And so, yeah, to cut off this potential ally just, I mean, cr- so cruelly. Like it, it just, it just didn't need to be done. I don't understand why it was done, especially if I'm supposed to care about Tick. <laughs> I know Tick is irredeemable for you. I have still the slightest, tiniest sliver of hope, and part of that is predicated on this conversation that he ends up having with his father, when they can, you know, really talk about things that are going on, and they can get a little bit more understanding about each other. So back on the South side, um, after Letty kicks Tick, Tick out of her house, he goes to, I believe he goes to Hippolyta's apartment, right? Cause that's where Montrose was looking for Diana and he finds his dad drinking on the curb. Cause that's what Montrose does best. And they decide to talk and Montrose opens up about how, when he was younger, there was a pastor at, at his church who I'm assuming was queer because they caught, he says he, they caught him in a park with another man and they dragged him out in handcuffs on Easter Sunday. Like he was some sort of demon. And so that was a signal to Montrose and Montrose says later on, 
later on in that conversation, like I chose a life. Like I chose. Yeah. Cause they put him in a mental institution. Yeah. And they, they took him out of handcuffs, put him in a mental institution. And my, and that, you know, to a queer kid, that, that sends a very strong signal. Like this is not what you should be. So Matros basically tells Tick, like I chose a life. I chose to have a family. Even if I wasn't, you know, in romantic love with your mother, we loved each other. We both needed families because Dora, as we learned in the previous episode, was the only survivor from her family from the Tulsa race massacre. And so they both came together to make this life together. And whether it was romantic love or not, they loved each other, I'm assuming as friends. And, you know, Tick is a... (laughs) is maybe a product of that. He might also be a product of George, but he's a product of this familial love. And then after she died, that is when he started maybe exploring a little bit more, particularly with Sammy, who I hope we see again. But I really enjoyed the fact that Tick and Machos had this conversation. Right. And so he he and Montrose, they cast the spell and, and Montrose dedicates himself saying like, oh, I'll do anything to protect my son and my grandson. I'll give my own life. All of that. It's a very touching moment. They they cast a spell, but nothing seems to happen. They seem really disappointed about it. And Letty at this point, she is really distraught about Gia. Who knows where Gia is? We don't see her anymore. She took all her tentacles and her tails and went on back to... South Korea, I guess. And so she went, Letty goes, and she also decides to make a deal with the devil in church. She brings Christina into the church house for reasons I don't understand. So she's in there and she's praying to God, oh, please protect Tick, which again, girl, like you can do better. At no point did she offer up any prayers for herself, her baby, her sister. It was just, it was just all about Tick. And I was, I was waiting like, okay, you know, shout out to Tick. Protect him, but not protect us. It's annoying. Yes. That's what, like, it's so, it bothers me that Christina has to be the one to be like, because Black women do this so often anyway, right? We're always, oh, let's look out for the men, sacrifice ourselves for the men, lay down on the ground so that the men can have a clean place to walk. Like, it's so annoying, but it's like, we're socialized to be this way, to be protective over people who are not similarly protective of us. And so, you know, Christina has to be the one to be like, girl, get a grip. Like, I'm not giving you, I'm not casting a spell of protection on him. If you want to do it for yourself, then I'll right. exchange because Letty brings um, the negatives of the photos that she took of Titus's pages that Christina has been looking for. So again, let's give the enemy who is the one that we're trying to fight against. Let's give right. her the, the, all the tools that she needs all, all um, that she's been tools. looking for all um, to harm us. Exactly. She has the key. She has the pages. Yeah. She has the she knowledge the to cast spells. She got the pages. Uh, but yeah. I, I don't. Yeah. I was so upset by everybody. <laughs> I was upset by everyone in this episode with the exception of Diana and surprisingly Montrose. Like I get his whole deal, especially at the end with Diana. Like I get it, but at least he's trying to protect her. He's, he's failing because he can't see what she sees, but like everybody else, I hated everybody else. 
even Letty, which is a surprise because I have loved Letty this whole series. But this, like, okay, I'm going to bring these negatives to you so I can give you... And at this point, she knows that Christina has the key to the Ori. Exactly. And she also knows that Tick is going to go cast the spell with the knowledge that he learned from Christina. So again, why, Letty, are you thinking about protecting him when he's already working on how to protect himself? So at any rate, she makes the trade with Christina to give herself invulnerability because she finally remembers she's got a baby to protect. And then Christina puts this ram's symbol on her body and we see that it actually works because when she goes back home at this point she's in the house and her other tenants are in the house as well diana comes to lancaster's office and she wants answers she wants to know what they've done with her mother because she's seen that they have woody and so she knows that lancaster must have had something to do with her mother's disappearance as well or must know something so she goes there to get answers which is just very bold and brave of her and he says oh I'll give you, I bet you've been chased by some, some demons this, you know, I'll, I'll, I can get rid of them for you. But you have to do something for me, which I would assume he wants her to go to the house. He does ask her where the, or, where the Ori is to get the Ori and that if he gets the Ori, then he'll remove the spell. And she hocks a loogie on him and says, fuck you pig. And it just, it gave me, it cleared my skin. Yes, it God. gave me a second wind. <laughs> it gave me some shine and luster to my hair. I said, okay, Diana, that was something I think a lot of people wish that they could do and something that the adults in the room should have been doing, but did not do. So Lancaster decides at that point, he's not going to go chase Diana down because he knows that the demons are going to take care of her is what he says to his partner. And they end up getting a whole bunch of cops together to go to Letty's house to get the Ori back themselves. But there's a little surprise when they get to the house. Yeah, Lancaster can't get in the house, number one. They're all opening fire on the house. Bullets are bouncing off Letty. She's in her Neo moment. (laughs) The bullets are just flying by. But then Tick comes home to all these gunshots. And so that's at that moment, I guess, Letty sees from the window that he's out there and that the police are pointing their guns at him now. And she runs out there like, what are you going to, you and your baby going to jump in front of? I guess guess she (sighs) realizes at this point she's invulnerable. So I guess. Is your baby invulnerable? Again. Did you, did you check? Sis, black woman, ladies. Let's not and say we did. He had a good run. That's how I feel. I feel like she was going to use herself as a human shield for Tick, but of course she can't get there fast enough. Officer shoots at Tick and instead of being shot, we are back to the monsters that we saw in episode one. They are back and they start doing what they did in episode one mess like killing up all the all the cops i had that men in black moment like how are we going to explain this exactly they're still in a neighborhood so nobody nobody comes out to see like what in the world is happening like (laughs) nobody's gonna come out to see this monster and cops dead and whatever oh christina you know she blows the whistle you know and then everybody forgets so maybe it's that I guess. Because you're not allowed to know that the monsters exist. So even the tenants in the house. So maybe Tick has that same power power now because he summoned this monster that used to be controlled by Christina. Um, So yeah. And then Ruby 
I mean, not Ruby. So yeah, um, Letty tells Tick at the end of this scene that, oh, the spell worked. Which one? We don't really know. We know her spell worked. I also think that this is a really great time for us to bring in the writer of this episode and kind of find out what's going on with Christina, what's going on with Letty, and what's going on with Ruby, but most importantly, what's going on with Diana. We have a very special guest on the podcast today. We have Ihioma Ofordire, the writer of this wild, wild episode eight, Jigabobo. Welcome to Black Girl Watching, Ihioma. Hi, hello. Thank you for having me. We appreciate you coming on. We have so many questions and I feel like <laughs> you're the only one. You're the only one that can answer what is going on in this episode. It was, I mean, I, I was telling Brittany, I was terrified. I had nightmares about these two mm-hmm. of spirits that are haunting Diana. I mean, I was totally shook. And there's so, I mean, so we're, let, let's just get into it. Let's get into all of the yes. things that happened in this episode. But most importantly, I think was the story of Emmett Till. We knew that this was coming, but it was still really heartbreaking once it happened. And so mm-hmm. let's go inside. What was it like in the writer's room as you all are deciding how to tell this story, the episode title that you decided on, um, and how you chose to handle his death. Um, but you all chose not to to display it. And you also kind of take us through what happened to Emmett Till through Christina, actually. So this actually mm-hmm. happens to mm-hmm. a white body instead of a black person. Yeah. I mean, I just, I was like, y'all are, y'all are looking out for us. Y'all are doing something here that is important. So like, talk us through those decisions like well definitely um we wanted to honor Emmett and his tragedy and what his mom went through it was a very heated heated debate about whether or not we should show the body and some writers we want they want to show the body just so people can get the visual feel of it because when we see his body it's through a photograph this is a way for potentially the audience to see it more in a in a real context but then there were some writers who were like we could absolutely not show that body like it's it's another type of we were very aware of the trauma you know that we would be inflicting on you know black people watching the show so in the end we decided not to show the body and to actually do it on a white body christina just so that it could be shown but it's not done to us i just remember breaking the episode and i used to carry around this notebook with like and his mom in it and her crying and just so i can like just see in her face where she as much as I could but it was a very hard episode of break like it was very intense it was very challenging because you're dealing with a real person who had a huge impact we did this in 2018 so we have already been through Trayvon Martin we have already been you know been through Michael Brown so it was just a lot to take in and we read those two other tragedies within the episode as well. I don't know if you guys noticed it. Just particularly in episode eight, when Diana is being accosted by Lancaster, the white cop, you know, she says, I can't breathe. And I remember writing that line and thinking about watching that man being just choked to death and just for cigarettes. Yeah. And yeah, and so it was just a way to pay, you know, homage to him and just like we, you know, this story is just, it's just, it's just so many instances of how the, the tragedy and the abuse that Black people feel constantly um, in America in the 1950s, and you have this still happening today. So we, we try to find moments to like weave that in. And then, of course, at the, at the very end with Michael Brown, like hearing that testimony, you know, um, those were all ways just to um, infuse 
and to really hit the point of how, like, even though Emmett Till happened in the 1950s, this one happened in 2012, this one happened in 2014. It's just a constant reminder, you know? So, yeah, this episode is very, very, very heavy. One of the things yeah. we really enjoyed about episode seven and a theme mm-hmm. that kind of carried over into episode eight was talking about the rage of Black women and girls. Mm-hmm. And in this episode, we see Diana, we see Hippolyta's daughter and her expressions of rage. So why was it important for you guys to have these moments where in, in most stories, Black women, you know, we get angry, but we don't get a chance mm-hmm. to express it in ways that are powerful and are healing. And these two episodes, even though I'm, I'm still afraid for Diana, those <laughs> moments she had felt very powerful and very healing. So why was that important for you to incorporate in this episode? Well, I think a lot of times when people think of trauma regarding race and brutality, it's always looked through an adult lens. It's very rarely looked through the lens of a child. So this to me was just very much giving power to children. It's like you wanted to contrast the immaterial of that helplessness, of that just feeling like dejected and hopeless. And then you have this, this, this girl who is who in the midst of all of that stands up to that and has has power and conviction and determination. So it was just very important just to have a character who is just, even if it's a child who is just sees through the bullshit and is like, no, like I am not going to end up like my friend. You're not going to do that to me, you know? And then also remember like, um, you know, her uncle Montrose told her like, if they come for you, give you better fight, you know? So it's just like, all these things are building up within her and, you know, added to the fact that her mom isn't, is not there. She's just, to me, I always saw Diana as opposite of her mom. Like Diana just always had like a, a fighting spirit to me and an expression within her. So um, it just felt right that she, you know, will stand up to these racist ass Yeah, and we really see that in episode four when she's like yelling out to all the white people, my mama named this mm-hmm. comment. Like, y'all, you, you're mm-hmm. not going to take this from her. Everybody in here needs to know. So to have Hippolyta, who has been so constrained and limited and interrupted her whole life, yeah. um, to be raising a free Black girl in this in this mm-hmm. time period, I think is is really, really powerful. The thing that got me in this episode... We have got you. <laughs> Those pissing girl. Yes, and they stayed with. I'm telling you, I could not sleep. Like I, I could not. I had nightmares. Like I was, I was legitimately terrified of these, of these picking any girls. And like to see Topsy on the cover of Uncle Tom's cabin, and then to see that horrific demonic face, and then to see these two characters kind of modeled after Topsy, who, you know, in mm-hmm. in this story is so reduced from her humanity. I mean, she's, you know, became in, uh, became the, you know, essential stereotype of, you know, the foolish Black girl, a picking and not to be taken seriously and not to be considered yeah. human and, and none of those things. So for Diana, who is this free Black girl, who is so powerful, to have her being chased mm-hmm by those two kind of stereotypical characters. Y'all are, y'all are trying to tell us something here with this. So like, <laughs> break that down for us, like the, the images of these of these demonic spirits chasing Diana. <laughs> I love that you refer to them as demonic spirits. That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you're, you're not far off. We discussed in the room what exactly does Popsy and Bopsy, that's their name, what, what, what do they represent? And for when we were crafting this episode, 
you know, we landed on, like, they represent what society does to black girls. You Mm. know, they silence them. They make them hypersexual. They make them invisible. So this idea of of Topsy and Bossy chasing Diana to get Diana is a representation of what society does to little black girls and how, Mm. you know, and and, and yeah, it's just, it's it's very big. But yeah, but it's just, and that's why she's so toxic. That's why it's so interesting. He was like, I couldn't get her off my mind, you know? And I was like, that's so interesting because that is what, you know, we just felt like that is what society does to black women, like attacks us and pushes us and um, scares us and haunts us until we fight back. But um, we really wanted to just, especially like with the jigging and, and, you know, that's supposed to be representative of a menstrual Band, you know, so it just represents what society does to little black girls. Wow. Kind of to piggyback on that, like using things like Uncle Tom's Cabin, because I'm sure there there were any number of ways to depict Diana being haunted. Going off of using Im- imagery from Uncle Tom's Cabin, we've seen throughout the mm-hmm. whole show that you guys pull in these moments from Black history, Black culture, and Black art, whether it's recreating Gordon Park and weaving yeah. in words from James Baldwin and Gil Scott Heron and Intosaki Shange and the story of Bobo bringing in this this humanizing, really, in Matilda. So what are the conversations in the room about kind of pulling this off? So how do you mm-hmm. weave these moments and these characters and these people into the story so that they fit within the story and it's not just sort of a collection of all these random moments? You know, luckily in the writer's room, two of our executive producers um, had, um, I think, about four PhDs between them. Um, in African studies. So they had a wealth of knowledge. And we just so happened, it just so happened that our show was taking place in 1955, Chicago and Emmett Till. Like it's those, those, that just, just lined up and it worked out. But yeah, we, we, we were very detailed in our, our research. Um, like even in the writer's room, like three of our walls were like completely covered in photos. Like we had one wall that was, um, black and white photos from, period pieces and just like imagery of church and black people and Gordon, like a bunch of Gordon Park photos, just like picking up one complete um, like floor to ceiling wall. And then the middle, the second one we had was just like full of monsters and like adventure and just like comic books, you know, that was just like freaky. And then the third wall was like the our Afro um, futurism wall, which is mainly Shannon Houston, who wrote Seven. That was her wall. Like, I was very clear. Like, she chose all the photos. Um, so we were, we were like, in it. Like, we were living in it. So we were just very, like, just, you know, Misha is very detailed-oriented. So she, nothing gets by her. So it was, I won't say it was easy to weave it in, but it was just an insane amount of research that was, that was done. Like, we had a research book. Um, we had um, a research team. We weren't a team, but a guy who would do the research for us, whatever we needed. Um, so we had resources to to um, to pull from, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just so ha- I mean, I think it, that just comes with when you have a, a, a Black woman showrunner who, well, I would say a, a Black showrunner, period, who is just very, um, who, who's 
involved and interested in telling our stories properly and correctly and getting the details right. I think that's why a lot of people resonate with it. A lot of my, you know, my family, you know, my family friends will text me and say, I didn't know this. I didn't know this. I didn't know about this. So it's also an education, too, for Black people as well who don't know American, Black American history. I was very surprised that a lot of people didn't know Sundown Town, you know, Um, but if we're not being taught or we're not being given this information, you know, these things will be hidden forever. So um, I'm very thankful for the show for us to allow to bring things in and to like awaken people to the rich history that we have that's not just racism in this country. Right. And that was one of the things that Courtney B. Vance, when we spoke with him um, after episode two, that's one of the things that he mentioned about this show could be a moment where some people learn. This could be a teaching tool. Like, sure, it's entertainment, mm-hmm. it's sci-fi, it's fantasy, it's horror, but it's also a teaching tool. And I think that's as evidence, as you mentioned, about people not knowing about sundown towns, right? Because you mentioned all of the research that when in all of these moments in the show in general is the language of adam based on like a real language like what is it it's not real um it sounds real but um if i'm not mistaken we had a language team who created that language like we wrote it in english and then they just took it and created that language which is awesome you were saying before about having you know a black woman showrunner and how important that is and i i would just 100 agree i mean the book is about it's more so about Montrose and George than it is about anybody. Mm-hmm. And um, Misha really elevated the Black women characters, changed Horace to Diana. To have Misha center Black women and center Black girls in this story and kind of reclaim it, reclaim mm-hmm. all of these genres uh, from Afrofuturism to horror to sci-fi to fantasy, all of these different genres and say, you know, Black women and girls belong in the middle of these two is really, really mm-hmm. powerful. But I, uh, there's been a little bit of criticism around the portrayal of the queer characters on the show. So I'm wondering how you all, I guess, anticipated controversy around the characters, particularly Yahima's character in episode four, and and how you're all feeling about it now. Do you all do you have a, a, a group chat <laughs> where you all talk about uh, <laughs> what people are saying on Twitter? I try to get off of Twitter. Like after I live tweet, I'm like, okay, I have to get off. I can't read the comments because I know someone's going to say something or somebody's going to be off and it's going to be, that's not our intentions and I'm going to get really defensive. So I try not to steal Twitter after the show airs. But of course we had discussion about, you know, sexuality and um, Black people and sexuality, but we also have to keep in mind that this is the 1950s. You know, we're not progressive as we are now. So we have to change our lens um, to tell some of these stories. So, and that was the thing, like, you know, we talked about Atticus saying the F word to his his father. And it's like, in the 1950s, that is probably the word that would be used. We wouldn't use it today, but you know, we want to be as authentic to our characters in the time. So we, you know, we were very, we were very aware of how to handle our, our gay characters, especially when uh, if a gay character is killed. Like, you know, that's a, a big thing. Hard people all, you know, you know, the community feels as though gay lives on TV are expendable. Like, you just killed that character. So we were, we, we, we were aware of all these things, but also to tell the story correctly. And, you know, the thing, even Letty says it, you know, them holding Yahima, they're no different from Titus, you know? So we tried to address it as much as we, as we could, but um, I was not expecting the, the backlash from Yahima's death. 
I think I was a little bit surprised because that wasn't our, our intention at all in the very least. So it was more that that whole that whole um, the killing of Yahima more so came from out of Montrose's need to protect his son by any means necessary, even if it means killing this woman. It could have been anybody, you know, he would have still done it. So it was less about uh, her being two spirits, but more so about I need to protect my son from all this crazy magic shit. And it was just a way to prevent him. Like, if he does learn the language of Adam, if she is able to decode it, what does that mean for Atticus? Atticus is not going to stop. He's still going to, you know, try and, and beat Christina. So it was more so out of the love for his, his son than anything else. So going back to this idea of, like, the arguments that happen inside of the room, I know you were talking earlier um, <laughs> about the argument about whether to show Emmett Till's body. I wanted to know about, like, what a, a storyline or something that you really, really fought for or a particular detail that you fought hardest for and like what was the outcome of that and what happens how do you you know when people lose a battle in the writer's room like how do you how do you heal from that because that seems like a personal loss so you just want to tea that's what yes <laughs> <laughs> when this when we started this this season I started off as a writer assistant so of course I like I pitched and I helped and I did all this stuff my but my fullness and my expression came out when I was given episode eight right so that's when I was able to really just fight and I just remember like one of the biggest things I wanted like that opening scene like I really wanted Diana to be quiet and to be observant and just to take everything in and um just really just really focus on her point of view that was something I was like very very clear on you know this episode was it was very intense and very hard to break and I remember we had broken the episode to a certain extent and then some of the writers had to go off and write their outline. So it just became me and Misha. And we just, I remember we just sat in a room one day in the writer's room and we just went through every single scene and every single detail. And she shared stories that, you know, I was able to draw on and like include into the, the script. Um, and we just, we just went through it like just like all day, just sat there in that room, just the two of us and we just, hammered it out and I remember like some of the like and uh, like with Misha and me I'm very sensitive I'm, I'm you know I'm a cancer so I'm very emotional at times and that was my reaction to things was Misha's gauge on whether or not we should do it so if I had like a visceral reaction I was and she was like oh that's what we're doing we're doing it or that's what we're doing and I was like like it was just I, I just like some of the it was just so her her ideas and her thoughts were just so raw and so innovative that a lot of it scared me, like the whole Topsy of it. Like, you know, there was at one point we had discussed possibly having Topsy in blackface for the entire episode. And I was just like, whoa, like, and that's, and that's also a good marker of like when you're on the right path as a writer, when things scare you or things, you start to feel something within you stir. You're like, okay, this is this is the right way. It was just like when we broke the episode, I just remember like I felt it at the end. I was like, oh my God, this is going to be incredible. Like I knew it before we even wrote the outline. I was just like, just what we, if we able to get just half of what we discussed on screen, this is going to be incredible. And of course, you know, Misha decided to direct the episode. You know, breaking it with Misha was very, very intimate. And like, um, you know, as writers, you have to share your story and yourself and things that you 
don't want to remember, but, you know, may serve a story in a, in a particular way. You mentioned one thing about, you know, some if, if only half the things got into the episode. So what didn't we see? What What is on the cutting room floor? This is different versions of what we kind of have already. At one point we had Diana and her friends are, were actually together after the funeral and talking more about... Um, how they felt, and I, you know, we could, we saw more of Diana's progression of her anger. At one point, it was just, it was just Topsy, and she was by herself. Um, and then we later on, we added in Boxy just to give that extra texture and weight. Oh, I, I can say this: <laughs> Episode Eight, Hippolyta was actually supposed to be there. That's how we originally broke it. Mm. That Hippolyta will be there, and it was actually Shannon. <laughs> who we were at the tail end of her episode. And she's like, what if Triple doesn't come back? And I remember my gut reaction to like, what? And Misha loved it. She was like, she's not coming back. And I was just like, so my whole episode was like blown up because we had already like put this together of, you know, Hippolyta being there. So it's like episode eight was completely blown up. So we had to like change it around to where Hippo wasn't going to be there at all. And yeah, it's actually way better than than originally than what we had. It's, uh, it, it makes it completely Diana's journey, you know, without any parental guise over her. This is Diana's episode, but there is another mm-hmm. angry black woman on this show in this episode that we have not talked about. And I do not want to let you go uh, without talking about Ruby and what is going on with Ruby. You know, I think Ruby is very, she's conflicted. You know, this tragedy happens within it and it makes her, you know, of course, think about what exactly is she doing being on the north side with this white woman playing with magic um, when she should be with her people. Um, but then I think there's also a part of Ruby where it's just like, I just don't, I just want to escape all of that. Like, I just don't want to have to deal with the trauma and the, the psychology behind it. And it's like, you know, when you're seeing the same thing, over and over again like I mean even to me myself personally I had gotten to the point where I was like I have to just detach from the constant you know videos of you know black people being killed like I just couldn't watch them anymore um because I just felt how it was just detrimental to my psyche and my well-being and you know Ruby is having that same exact kind of you know that that thought process she feels guilty being on the north side with Christina but at the same time it's like she needs a reprieve from it and so that whole <laughs> bloody sex scene <laughs> it, it was more so of like William was making her face it like she wanted to like before she changed into Ruby she wanted to you know she didn't want to have sex with him anymore but it, he forced her to have that change and that transformation and to confront herself and live and be born in that power instead of running away from it. So, I mean, Ruby, I love Ruby. I just, you know, I think they treat her so wrong on the show, her family. Um, so I just, you know, you, she has to start, it comes to the point where she's just like, I have to look out for myself. I have to look out for Ruby. Ruby is always taking care of everybody and watching out for everybody. When does Ruby choose herself? And so she she kind of sees magic as this tool for her to get everything that she wants and everything that she should have, that she deserves. And I think that's part of the reason why she stays with Christina as long as she does. When you've been denied your whole life as a Black woman in this country and you, you get a taste of that freedom, it's, can any would you be able to just say, okay, I'm done with this? 
you know, especially in that time, 1950. I don't know. That's really, really powerful. And what the show is actually about, like which tools are Black people supposed to use to fight white supremacy? How can we win? As you've been writing on this show and thinking about this question for the characters, I'm wondering if you've kind of thought about it for yourself and like, and have evaluated the tools you've been using or changed the tools you've been using as a result of your work on the show. Well, definitely. I think for me, <laughs> you just start to, you start to question question yourself, right? You start to say, well, am I an agent for white supremacy by doing what I'm doing? Like, I don't know. I feel like a lot of times, like, especially in Hollywood, like we're, we're so connected to our stories and wanting to like break in and get in and, and, you know, just, you know, have a, a chance to express ourselves. But, you know, a lot of that comes with a lot of give and take. Um, and um, <laughs> I just feel like you just start to question, what are you doing? Are you really telling the correct stories? Are you really being truthful in your storytelling? Or are you just pretending? Or are you really just an agent for white supremacy without you even knowing? Because yeah. I can even say like a lot of my, my earlier work, it, it was not just woke and like nuance and detail. And a lot of it was very stereotypical. And but now I, I'm just like, I, I can just see the, the change and the difference and just making sure that everything that I'm writing and creating is very authentic. My voice and my experience and to the Black experience, you know, and not just the Black experience in America, but the Black experience all over the world. It definitely, working on the show definitely changed my perspective and how I go about creating and making sure that I'm, I'm paying, I'm, I'm, I'm being truthful and I'm honoring, especially if it's a period piece. Like period pieces to me are just, I just always want to make sure I'm honoring those who came before. Before we let you go, Montrose, he was like, look, please tell me there's a happy ending in this book. I know you can't answer whether or not this season (laughs) will have a happy ending, um, at least for the Blacks, which is what I hope. But um, I know Misha has talked in other interviews a lot about like wanting the season two, um, hoping, you know, the show gets picked up. This is not. Um, at least in the interviews I've heard, it's not like a limited series in her mind where it's like a one and done series. So if you guys are able to explore more of this story in season two, where would you like it to go? <laughs> Look at you. It's digging. Um, <laughs> we have talked a little bit about it too. And I know, I think I'm trying to answer this without giving anything away about of this season ends. I think whatever we do for season two, I think it it will be completely different than what we have seen so far because we'll be we'll be operating not from a book adaptation anymore because you know Lovecraft Country is only just one one book. So I think season two will be free to really just explore and expand more than we did in season one. So. If we do get a season two, um, I would be very excited to um, just see what we come up with and who's coming back and, you know, what we can do and, you know, how we could play this thing. So I'm sure it'll be, it'll be great. Without giving anything away about the next two episodes, right? Do you think the fandom will be hopeful or heartbroken at the end of season one? <laughs> You are good, girl. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's going to be a roller coaster of emotions from on every spectrum. 
So, which is what I, we, we will hope that the audience will feel. Just to, to keep it with how the entire season is, has been. I mean, it's going to be big and epic and wild. So, everybody should talk a lot. Definitely have my seatbelt on. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, you ladies, for having me. That was so illuminating. Such a beautiful conversation. We're always so thankful when people involved in this show come and share a little of their wisdom with us and give us a deeper understanding of the episode. Indeed. Before we go, we want to give a couple of shout outs to our really, really great listeners, Dr. Jessica Jones. I was calling her Jen Jones last episode, but my apologies. Dr. Jessica Jones, who has been one of our most engaged listeners, particularly on our Black Girl Watching Twitter account. Um, Shout out to Shanita Hubbard, a fellow writer and friend of the show who said our podcast makes her love the series even more. And Dominique, aka Dom underscore Natrix on Twitter. Um, She said, if you're not listening to Black Girl Watching recap and break down Lovecraft Country, what are you even doing with your life? And I totally agree. So thank you to everyone who listens. Please tweet with us on Sunday nights. Share, retweet, send us your ideas, send us your questions, your theories, so we can discuss them. We only have two more episodes. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited too. And I think the lyric to end on this week is from Beyonce, brown skin girl, best thing in all the world, I'll never trade you for anybody else. Shout out to Diana and all the Dianas in the world. Shout out to Naomi Walder and all the Black girls who just need to be loved and need to have the kind of carefree childhood that they deserve. Amen. Oh, that brings us to the end of another episode. We'll see you back here next week in Lovecraft Country. I'm Brittany Danielle. I'm Brooke Obi. Black girl out. For far too long, these names, these Black girls and women have been just numbers. I'm here to say never again for those girls too.